The world has changed. I can feel it in the dice. I feel it in the character sheets. I smell it in the books. Much that once was is lost, for none now gain who remember it. Welcome to The One Podcast, a show all about the One Ring and experiencing Middle-earth through gaming, with your hosts, J.M., Richard, Ben, Calvin, and Chris. Welcome to the Green Dragon Inn. Your fellowship has assembled again to take you once more into the world of the One Ring. Uh, with me tonight, we actually have a full cast tonight. Everybody say hello. Hello. Good evening. Hello, Internet. So tonight we're actually going to start a new series. We're taking a break from looking at cultures, and we're going to start looking into some of the specific mechanical subsystems that uh, are unique or have unique spins on them in the One Ring. And tonight we are talking about journeys. That's our first spotlight. But uh, let's do a recap, guys. What What have you been doing in gaming since the last time we recorded? Well, let's see. So... We started up a 5th edition game uh, that I've been playing in uh, and managed to do a game of Infinity last week as well. Well, We did try the Infinity one-shot. How was that? Yeah, how was that? Fantastic. (laughs) I I really enjoyed it. Uh, Yeah, we we had one person who kind of went in not wanting... To like agreeing to give it a shot because that's what we wanted to do. The rest of us wanted to do, and came out of it with um, them being willing to play in a actual game of it. So I took that as a pretty big success. Wow! Yeah, yeah. Um, So yeah, yeah, definitely some fun mechanics that they put in it that uh, are fairly unique. So cool. Well, I am playing in JM's Numenera game. Um, we just finished our, I think, one-year anniversary session. Like, right. So pretty pretty awesome. I've never been a player in anything for that long, so that's, that's really exciting for me. Um, uh, we're in space right now, which is really fun. And, um, space! <laughs> that's right. And we're, and we're hunting down... Uh, we're, we're not hunting down, but we're, we're currently dealing with um, was very clearly a Star Trek episode, um, yes. in which there are there's like some kind of an idyllic paradise space station which we've landed on, in which nothing is as it seems, and the whole thing is going to turn out to be some kind of really evil mastermind. Like I'm literally just I'm I'm waiting for a green woman at this point. Like that's how Star Trek this is. So, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Nice. Uh, well, that's that's too bad. Anyway, but it's, it's, it's definitely a compliment. Um, but uh, yeah, so having a lot of fun, having a lot of fun playing my nano, um, which is kind of in a different role for me. So yeah. Yeah, that game. It's hard to believe we've been playing that for a year, or that you guys are in space, both of which are <laughs> completely bizarre to me. Or that um, Nick's character is currently covered in a bubblegum pink uh, candy coating. Yep. Um, <laughs> he's a strange one. Uh, 
I, I will have to say the highlight of that last session was uh, me presenting, and I, we, we won't mention names, but me presenting the pilot of the group with a simple four-button oh, spacecraft. <laughs> this was amazing. This was the most amazing thing I have ever seen. <laughs> you can name names. <laughs> it it so, took Ben so, nearly so, a half hour to figure out a four-button spaceship. So, so JM gives him a spaceship with four very specific buttons, and the problem is that JM was too specific. Like, if you give a group of role players a spaceship, then you say, "Okay, fine, I pilot the spaceship down to the planet and whatever." But as we got on the spaceship. He's like, okay, you see four buttons in front of you. One does this, one does this, one does this, and one does this. Well, the way JM worded it, Ben, I think, think fairly reasonably knowing JM, assumed that this is a puzzle, and if he does it wrong, we all get saved and we die. <laughs> like, and there's no, like, there's no coming back from that. So, like, Ben is, like, trying really, and, like, we're having arguments about how does gravity work in space and stuff like that. Like, we're... We're having arguments about how should how should you know the what sequence should we press the buttons in, and JM is it, JM is just like losing his mind. It was it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what about you, Ben? What have you been doing? Well, um, of course I've been in that that Numenera game, which has been a blast. I'm looking forward to Monday when we hit it up again. Um, I've also been playing in Richard's uh, One Ring game um, as a new character, Woo! a hobbit, um, by the name of Foxglove Smallborough of Bywater, the Shire, and um, who uh, is... Last session, we ended up encountering a Wood White and totally failed the, the fear roll, and she she did manage to support the rest of the party by, by making a Bowdy Limerick while, you know, still rocking herself in terror against the... Uh, she, she <laughs> might have peed herself a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was a good session, but uh, yeah, no, we also stole Kaiwen's boot. Um, and, yeah, she uh, she stole the boot of an important NPC, and she's shipping it home for her father to put on the mantle. Exactly. <laughs> in uh, in my own game that I'm running, um, I am running still running that D and D fifth edition, uh, like my Gygaxian rock opera. Um, and we just arrived in a town where they don't eat enough bacon and dancing is banned and, um, yeah, everything sucks. And so the band is having to decide whether or not they sell out and play really quietly and not do any dancing or if they actually are going to break all the rules and get footloose. So. And be heroes just like Kevin Bacon. Just, just like, like Kevin Bacon. Exactly. <laughs> <That's right>. exactly. <laughs> uh, so that's ben fun. really needs to start writing up his session notes on this D&D game because it's, inevitably he tells us about it and it it is just an amazing campaign. So my, the 40 plus Terry Pratchett books which I have read are coming out in full force here. I have and, I have talked to Ben actually about guesting for a week so that might happen sometime soon. Ooh, I, that would be awesome. I have a super <laughs> nerdy wizard that I'm going to let Ben just like destroy. <laughs> we have to have somebody who's who's not too cautious, who like actually open the horrible black necromantic tome they have currently buried under seven uh, sheepskins. <laughs> I mentioned that. That's what they decided to do, right? They had this horrible black necromantic tome that was like looking at them, and so they decided to just put it under a bunch of sheepskins. That's how they were containing this magic. Sheepskin seems really specific. 
Yeah, no, they were, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's been a blast. Very cool. Christopher, what have you been up to? Uh, not much. Um, playing in the same 5th uh, edition game that Calvin and you are. But other that than that, true. not not you a whole actually, lot. Just... You have actually spent 100% more time shoveling... Um, <laughs> Quagoth excrement than any of us have. <laughs> have, you guys, have you guys escaped yet? We did. We did escape. We escaped while Christ- Christopher's shoveling of poo uh, kind of precipitated the escape attempt after the first one failed horribly because we were like, none of us want to do that. And then we broke yeah, out. Gotta, he gave us the courage. I gotta say, shoveling poo builds character. Yeah, so... <laughs> But uh, but other than that, not much. Just because uh, I'm in the process of moving, so so not a whole lot of opportunity to do do yeah do any do do a whole lot of gaming. But uh, we're getting we're tomorrow we're gonna be back. So yes. On a on a side note, I just wanted to point out that um, it it is currently Lent, and for Lent I gave up social media, but with the caveat. Oh that uh, the, the podcast doesn't count. So I just want to put that out there and uh, say that, you know. Yeah. That's commitment. Yeah, because we're we're using Google and all that wonderful stuff, so didn't uh, want to be out of the loop for 40 days. I appreciate that. I gave up being Catholic for Lent like 10 years ago, and I have, <laughs> I, have, I have stuck to it. It's been my longest Lenten Fast. <laughs> well, I've actually given up refined sugars, so. Wow. I've noticed an increase yeah. in crankiness. I guess that's got to be. Yes. That's well, <laughs> you should just be really grateful I didn't give up coffee because then people would be dying. <laughs> <laughs> that's just ridiculous. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's get into the episode. Uh, today, we're going to, as we said, we're going to talk about. Uh, the journey mechanics. Um, let's kind of just start. Why? Why is it an important mechanic to use? I'll start this one off. Go for it. <laughs> um, the journey, the 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 component of traveling, is a huge element of Tolkien's fiction, and that is something that you either love about his fiction, or I guess you hate about his fiction. Um, but one of the one of the great things that the journey mechanic allows you to do in Tor is sort of replicate that feel of, hey, Middle Earth is actually really big, you guys. It's not, oh, there's you know two or three days of waste land between, you know, Neverwinter and the next large city or something like that. Like it's it's not like that at all. It's it's there are you know huge huge tracts of wilderness. And that's where a lot of your common skills are going to come into play. Uh, things like hunting, things like awareness, things like scouting, or uh, sorry, explore. That's the, the sort of thing that you're most likely to end up having to use on a journey. So I would say the first reason it's important is because it, it really effectively reproduces an element of the fiction. And for the players, what I think this has the opportunity to do is if, if your players really like Middle Earth, or if they just like exploring in general, the idea of you know getting to travel from place to place and see you know see the scenery described, see the uh, the changing of the seasons as you travel, stuff like that, 
you get an opportunity to sort of paint those scenes with a broad brush without it turning into a hex crawl. Um, not that there's anything wrong with hex crawls, but not at all. But that's but that's not this game. So so I think I think it really the journey mechanic really effectively allows you to get a sense for how large Middle Earth is, and then to feel the just the joy and the wonder of getting to explore it, and sort of tying things, you know, having a spatial sense of game, tying certain events or tying certain creatures or cultures to different places on the map, um, and that's something that your your more traditional Gygaxian games uh, very often miss out on for me. Um, especially, especially when you get to some of the the newer stuff. Um, I'm not I'm not trying to pick on Forgotten Realms here, um, but in Forgotten Realms, like it's so homogenous. Like, mm. you know, you walk into a city. Oh, there's an elf. There's a halfling. There's a gnome, and it's like no big deal at all. Whereas in Middle Earth, if you want to meet high elves, well, you've got to travel a long way and find a secret valley and all this other stuff. And it's it's that's one of the really cool things about it to me. So I, I think number one, again, would just be that it, it's a core element of the fiction. Um, and this game does a great job of trying to replicate the fiction. Um, and then the second reason is just the, the joy of exploration. Yeah, I was going to actually say something pretty similar to what Richard said there about it being deeply thematic, that if you read The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, basically all that's happening the entire time at its core is they're traveling. Um, so if you're gonna tell a, a one ring, you know, story, you gotta have the traveling mechanic down pat because this is at its core. And I think honestly, most most of the stuff that that Tolkien is actually, you know, is being inspired by is pretty similar in that regard. So, How so? Like, uh, well, as in quests, we have to go to this place to do this thing, and then yeah. everything happens along the way. Um, right, and if you meet, if you look at some of Tolkien's pre-romantic in, inspirations, North, Norse mythology, but then also the Arthurian mythos, that you there's always a traveling element to those quest stories. Mm-hmm, you always mm-hmm, have to exactly. pass through a dangerous place, usually a wood, um, to get there. One of my favorite lines in um, the Gawain and the whole Gawain the Green Knight. Yes. Is where he's at, he's traveling, and it describes how he's traveling and that all these adventures that he's had. That they basically give like a half a line about meeting trolls and all these fights and everything. And, but, yes. And then you're like, wait, what? Hold the hold the phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I could wait to, to 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 talk to have this another seduction scene. Let's 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 talk about the trolls. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's it. Exactly what we're talking. What we're talking about. What about uh, what about uh, you and Calvin, uh, Christopher? What are your what are your thoughts on all of this? Um, I think uh, Ben and Richard kind of kind of you know got a spot on there. You know, I mean, if if you play another role playing games, you know, you're probably gonna travel around, and you can do certain things as you're traveling, random encounter or whatnot, but journey the the journey is so just tolkien that you know it just makes sense for them to codify it as rules and if you really want that that feel of of you know the lord of the rings or the hobbit you know use the journeys cuz it's just it's going to 
is going to make it feel, you know, just more Tolkien than 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 any other kind of uh, uh, game out there. I think. Well, yeah, I don't I... really have much to add to that. Okay. Um, I. You know, Richard mentioned hex crawls, which is something that I thoroughly enjoy about some of the other more old school games that I enjoy running. But there is even just this sense of roll hex, you know, enter a new hex, roll, encounter. Whereas the journey mechanics in Tor have really kind of been crafted to one, put a lot of a lot of the decisions in the hands of the players, which we'll talk about here in a second. Mm-hmm. But two, I, I would agree with with uh, the rest of the fellowship here saying it feels it feels like the events that we read about in the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit mm-hmm. without feeling like it's bogging down the game if exactly. that makes sense yeah so well let's talk about the player facing mechanics so let's start off with roles those are a very important part of the journeys that and important decisions that the characters, and players get to make. So, uh, Calvin, Christopher, and Ben, why don't you give us the give us an overview of the roles? Okay. Well, I, I think you know just just to start off, we should let folks know the rules that we're going to be talking about here. These are starting on page 153 in the main rule. Well, um, and there's actually a handy dandy little breakdown there on that page of. Each of these actually went page 154 actually. Uh, at least, wait, that's my PDF version, so probably is 153 actual pages. Um, <laughs> it actually says 154 at the bottom, so it is still. Oh, okay, 154. Okay, all right. Um, where basically they break down to four basic uh, core roles: um, that of guide, um, scout, huntsman, and lookout. And uh, basically, every member of your party takes on. Um, one of these roles, and I think if you have too many, you can have more than one, or on a particular role, or vice versa. If you have too few, you can double up on roles as necessary. Ex- except for guide, guide you can only have yes. one. Yes, there you go. Um, and each of these ties into a specific skill set. Uh, it's not a skill set, a specific skill. Um, so usually you can pick these roles by who has the highest level in that skill. For example, um, guide requires the travel skill, um, so you always want whoever has the highest uh, travel skill in your in your fellowship to to take that on. Um, scouts ties back to uh, explore. Huntsman ties to hunting. Who'd have guessed? Um, and lookout <laughs> man ties to awareness. <clears throat> so, yeah. Now, so what is the purpose of these roles? So the the purpose of this is basically you're setting your party up to to travel. As if you were going to be traveling a long distance, you would want you know somebody to be in charge of the route. You want somebody to be in charge of you know finding food for the for the you know the party. And so this is you know everybody going through and amongst themselves figuring out who's going to be in charge of dealing with what part of this journey that you're going to make so that you are prepared, theoretically, to make said journey. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because as we learned as we learned from Shadowrun, no plan actually survives contact with uh, the gaming environment. Right. Yeah, the dice. <laughs> the dice. <laughs> okay, so 
we'll back up here for a second. You have come to the point, as Richard said, where you have to decide to go somewhere because uh, the vast majority of Middle Earth is actually not populated. It's not like the realms where you can you know, travel up and down the Sword Coast and hit, hit cities at regular intervals. Um, so you've made your decision, hey, we're going to go out. You've assigned these roles because some people are just better at looking at things than, than others. Some people are good at, at hunting. Roles are assigned. What's kind of our next step there? Was yes, that setting the route. The route. The route. <laughs> <laughs> so, for instance, you could decide to save time that you wanted to take a shortcut through Mirkwood. <laughs> On the old dwarf road! <laughs> Do that, guys! <laughs> that, that seems like a, a poor decision, but let's go with it. So how, how, as the players, do you set... And actually, this actually brings up a good point, something I was thinking about when I was preparing about these journeys, is um, unlike most games that I have played, the actual physical map of the world comes in very handy um, right here. Um, yes. In the sense that it's not just a cool prop or just sort of to give you some context, that you need the map. Uh, because it's going to show you, okay, what's the shortest route to get somewhere? It's not a matter of, um, you know, you're not going to automatically find the find the route. It's not like, you know, some sort of GPS system is just going to take you there. Like in most, most you know, D&D 5e games or even D&D games in general or most other role-playing games I've played, when you, even the Numenera game, it's like when you travel, you're traveling. You go from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Here... Um, because the sandbox world that they're working in, there are better ways to get places. And in fact, the fact that it does take a long time to travel by foot or on a pony or even by a boat, um, it means that sometimes you do end up making calls like that. Um, for example, in the fateful <clears throat> adventure on the old dwarf road, um, where my last <laughs> character bit it, yeah. um, most tragically, also epically, um, we were supposed to meet with uh, Radagast on the other side of the Mirkwood, on the the Shire side of Mirkwood, um, uh, it, it, by the by the, what was it the first day of summer I think it was, right. um, and so we were when we were planning that route we were sitting there going uh, the the fellowship and I were sitting there going okay well that's not a lot of time that's like that's like a month and a half and we have and you know so and and who knows what could happen between points so we need to take the fastest route possible hence the sort of stupid decision to take the old dwarf road which. Which is basically, you know, the, the road, <laughs> the road to perdition is basically what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah, no, we we got a, got a day in there, and the, you know, we got ambushed during an ambush, and yeah, got half a party got eaten by a basilisk while the other one was was defending itself, saving the rest of the, covering their retreat from a horde of of Mirkwood goblins. And yeah, only one only one survived. But again, that's one of the the differences, say, between Numenera and the One Ring. Yeah. Uh, when in, when you go to travel in Numenera, you guys you guys have generally said, "Oh, I want to go. We want to go here," yeah. and it's up to the GM to go. Okay, well, here's kind of the main route, and here's here's some things along the way that I could pull from. But in the One Ring, the actual route planning is on the PCs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How does that change that uh, that aspect from the player side of things? Well, I, I would certainly harken back to your earlier comment. This is, you know, this is the pre-planning. This is, you know, 
shadow run, right? You're coming up with the plan and then waiting for your dice to screw it up for you. I mean, <laughs> Calvin has a very hate hate relationship <laughs> with the uh, dice part of any role playing game. <laughs> <laughs> he and our elf should talk. <laughs> She has the worst luck with it. Oh, she is technically uh, scarce in the game, but it's it doesn't matter what kind of dice. They all hate. <laughs> last um, uh, journey to start out with, the elf rolled. Uh, they had to do four hazard checks for the journey. So the way I, which we'll talk about that in a moment, but the way I do it is I just have you roll all your hazard stuff up front, and then I sort of figure out how it would make sense story-wise, and then narrate it out. She rolled four Eye of Saurons in a row. <laughs> so the party the party got four hazards, like for one for every stage of the journey. It was it was really Well that's I think a, a great segue. Well, maybe not for her, but I think it's a great segue into the GM side of things. Alright, so once once the route has been selected, the players the players' work is mostly done and everything goes smoothly from there, right, Richard? Definitely. So once the once the players have selected their route, there are there are essentially two versions of the map. One is the sort of neutral version of the map, and then one is a hex version of the map, which has some uh, useful information for the players. Or sorry, for the for the lore masters. So lore masters, you can look at page one hundred and fifty six of your um, of your your core book. And what you'll see is, um, you, what, what you have there is a map um, of Middle-earth, similar to the one, um, specifically Wilderland, similar to the one which the players have. Um, mm -hmm. However, it is um, laid out in hexes, um, so you can sort of count distance. And it is also divided up by color and then by a runic symbol on each colored area. The runic symbols... Um, indicate the kind of terrain uh, or the kind of land that it is. So things like freelands, borderlands, wildlands, shadowlands, and darklands. So obviously Mordor or some, something like that is going to be a dark land. Then things are divided up in by color. And uh, the colors indicate how difficult the terrain is to navigate. Um, so for instance, you've got, you know, kind of a dark red, which is going to be your daunting terrain, which is going to be the kind of the main terrain you're going to run into most of the time. Um, and then you've got, and then you've got, uh, um, you know, lighter colors or green colors, which indicate places which are easy to navigate. And these are basically, the, those calculations are essentially based on Tolkien's own works, what he said about those areas and how he mm -hmm. did that in maps. So what you're going to do is once your players have said, we would like to get from point A to point B, and we're going to, let's say, take the running river down to the old dwarf path, and then we're going to try to take the old dwarf path through Mirkwood. So the first thing you want to do is count out um, the distance that they're going to travel for, the, for each leg of the journey. So you do journeys and legs. So you say, all the way down the running river, that might be the first leg. So you're going to count the hexes, and that'll give you the, your distance traveled. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're going to multiply that by your terrain modifier. And uh, the terrain modifier will depend on how difficult the terrain is. And then finally, you will take 
um, the region, the kind of region that you are in, into account for. Well, that's going to come into account later when, when you ask for fatigue tests. So once you figured out your distance and your terrain type, what that that will give you a that will give you a determination for how long the journey will take the players based on what their mode of transportation is. So you've got um, transportation speed is on page 158. You've got uh, speed on foot, speed on horseback, speed if you're on a boat going up and downstream. So you can use that plus your distance and your terrain modifiers to figure out how long will it take my players to travel from point A to point B. Once they do that, you look at what season you're in. So something that really matters in one ring is paying attention to the way that the times and the seasons pass. So once you figure out, okay, this journey is going to take my players two weeks, and it's spring. Well, if you're in spring, you have you get a fatigue test every five days. So that's about two weeks. That's about three fatigue tests. Um, and that, if I may, Richard, that is yep. another of the important parts of of the journey mechanics because the passage of time is such a key component both to the stories and the mechanics. Right. And the lengths of the journeys feed into that and help set the mood of the game, this journey of time marching forward. Oh, no, no, you're fine. Um, yeah, and and just to that, that, that's one of the things about travel in, in the One Ring is it does take an appreciable amount of time and one way that you can make travel matter to your stories and to your players is by giving them some time limits for things. And then they have to make decisions about how quickly are we going to travel? Which direction are we going to take? Do we want to risk a more dangerous route in order to get to somewhere you know, faster so we can be back for this other thing? Those sort of things creates pressure and creates sort of natural time crunches. So once you figured out how many fatigue tests that you have, then you're going to ask your players to make those fatigue tests. So to start with, um, players can attempt a lore roll to gain bonus success die, and those use the same preliminary rolls rules that uh, um, pretty much all of the other non-combat mechanics use. Um, and then they make their fatigue tests. And you can sort of do fatigue tests all at once, or you can do them individually um, for each leg of the journey. So what I tend to like to do is ask for my fatigue tests all at once, and then I will write down the results of them all, um, come up with any hazards that need to be um, used for this journey, and then I'll sort of uh, quickly sketch that out on a, on a sheet of paper or a, a notepad file if I'm running a game online. And then what I'll do is narrate, here's the journey, here's what you're doing. Uh, but you can do it, whatever works best for you and your players. So let me just ask you one quick question, though. You said yeah. that you tend to roll them all at once and kind of gather them. The couple of times that I have run the One Ring <clears throat> over, a mul over multiple sessions, um, I have tried to time it so that the journey planning is the last part of the session. Gotcha. Uh, so that then I have time to kind of sit back and walk through the map and count up the hexes and build the 
GM side of the mechanics right. on the downtime. Do you do that on the fly? Do you do that? How, how do you handle that in your game? Um, I do it on the fly. The 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 coming up with the you know counting hexes and things like that usually takes me just a minute or two. Uh, for games that I've run in person, I will I will look at the uh, as part of my game prep. I look at the most likely routes, and I just do all the calculations for them ahead of time. Um, and usually, I'm pretty good at guessing sort of what my players are going to do in that regard. Occasionally, they throw me a curveball, but but it doesn't happen too often. Um, the other thing that I do, though, is I have planned out all of my hazards for pretty much every part of Wilderland already. Um, I have I have some extensive hazard tables, some of which I've made myself, and some of which I've gotten on the Cubicle Seven forums. And so, if we, if somebody rolls a hazard somewhere, I've already got something for the appropriate roll that we can use. Um, so that's that's the other thing. It's sort of this is definitely something where your prep as a lore master is really going to come into play. Uh, the One Ring, in general, I think, really rewards lore masters who prep. Yes, and I will say this: if on just a side note, if you haven't made custom encounter tables for your game, it doesn't matter what what game it is, D and D, um, Adventure Conqueror King, The One Ring, uh, making encounter tables or random tables is one of the hidden joys of being a game master. It's the most that, fun thing. Yes, mm-hmm. making random Vol Spirit Power tables, though. I must say, was was a highlight of the Numenera game. Yes. Okay, so before, once the once the lore masters kind of made their final, uh, their final calculations, the players also get to make one lore test to uh, attempt to assign any journey advantages, gain some journey advantages before the whole thing starts. And then we move into fatigue tests. So, as Richard said, each companion has to make a fatigue test based off the difficulty and how many how many sections of the, the journey are broken up into. Um, target number is usually standard. The uh, lore master does have the freedom to change this up. I would highly recommend every once in a while doing that. If they are having a rough time, Give them a little bit easier check. Let the journey be a little bit more relaxing. Let it be a little bit more calm. It also could be used to heighten the the mood. Why did Richard just give us such an easy journey test? What does he have planned? Is it a pack of basilisks? I don't know, but you can probably <laughs> uh, a you can, roving gang of basilisks. A roving gang. I will say, Ben, I've never fudged a TN. I, I, I will be honest, hearing JM suggest making something easier for the players almost made me laugh. <laughs> I know. I, I, know. I was here. <laughs> I was here when you said that, Calvin. I heard that. <laughs> um, maybe we'll leave that in. Listen, there are times when things can, can be easier, usually right before they get tougher. Uh, <laughs> you know. Um, so what a fatigue uh, test is, is... Uh, it represents kind of the stress of the journey, uh, both on the character, the party as a whole. Um, failing a fatigue test just means that you weren't as well prepared, and it's a draining experience on you. 
Um, now, as Richard said, if you fail a fatigue test with Eyes of Sauron, well, that's when hazards start to pop up. And <laughs> right. so in addition to increasing your fatigue score, uh, which makes the rest of the adventure that much more difficult for your character, if you roll an Eye of Sauron, bad things have happened on the journey. And they tend to tie into the roles that the player who had the Eye of Sauron, uh, what role they were serving in. Uh, so That is not precisely correct. A table on page 160. And so <laughs> let's say, let's say you can out. tie it to the, the, well, you the person who fails it, which just highlights their failure of their dice. That is true, and it is amusing. Um, <laughs> Until the same person rolls four failures. Right. <laughs> um, um, I do tend to use the random table here on, on page 160, um, and that is... Um, if, so let's talk if, about that. Why do you prefer the random table? Because when I have run it, I have tried to tie it into the person who actually rolled the Eye of Sauron. So what, and again, you have far more experience in running this game than I do. What, um, what's kind of your feel? So the answer to that question is twofold. The first part of it is because I use the alternate travel rules, which maybe we'll talk about later. Um, and what they do is they already give ample opportunity for um, players to be using their common skills. Okay. Um, the second reason um, just tends to be that um, um, I just I like the I like the the element of randomness. Um, okay. So well, and to be honest, while traveling, um, traveling anywhere, to be honest, there is a sort of there is a sense of randomness to many of the things you encounter. So. Of all the places, in my mind anyway, to have a random encounter table, it really is, or a random event table, the road is where it's at. No, that's totally fair as well. Um, I guess maybe it's just because I'm more of an improv GM, uh, just kind of in my normal nature of how I run things uh, that come up at the table. It's just easier for me to key off of the person who rolled it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I and I think if that's, if that's interesting, then, then you can just... Yeah, you're, you're talking about basically four ambushes. Or you have one really massive ambush. Or you have one really massive ambush, yes. Because yes. you could, you could in theory, combine, combine hazard roll or Eye of Sauron rolls to make one hazard event key off of multiple different Eye of Saurons, if that makes sense. Right, and I do tend yes. to narrate the hazards sort of to chain together that way. Okay. Um, and so I, I guess one one valuable thing, sort of, you know, if you do have one person who rolls a couple of Eye of Celerons, if you use the hazards target table, or you just sort of narr you know, where where it makes narrative sense, you pick another role to sort of that. I mean, things like um, things like scout and guide, or um, scout and lookout play well off of each other enough so that you could have a little synergy and say, you know, you've got your scout and your lookout. I'm going to need both of you to make these hazard checks now. Yes. Yeah, so so the, the other reason to roll on the random target table is 
for if you don't have a role filled. Yes, that is a very good point, Calvin. So if, if you don't have a role filled and that role becomes the target of the hazard, the party, anybody in the party can choose to spend a point of hope to make the test to, you know, to overcome the hazard. If nobody chooses to spend a point of hope or can for whatever reason, then the test automatically fails. And basically, your goal as the lore master is to get them to spend that hope. Wait, did I say that out yes. loud? Well? No, no. no. <laughs> uh, we, have, we have a joke in the Numenera game that uh, different things run on XP. Uh, hazards run on hope. Except that you don't get hope back like you did get XP. So yeah. <laughs> it's like a non-renewable resource here, guys. Uh, uh, <laughs> I know you. I know you said you meant to say that as if it was a negative, but uh, yeah, I, I took that as a positive. <laughs> and so one thing I would just stress again, um, because it is such a unique system, it's very easy for journeys to be something that you gloss over because it's not yep. prevalent in any other it's not prevalent in a large number of other role-playing games. Right. Travel is hand waves. Travel is done by a montage. Travel is done um, in a number of a number of different and uh, from those games designers' perspective, interesting ways. Don't gloss over this. Like, take the time as a GM to really dig into the system, explain it to your players. Maybe even the first couple of times, go through it step by step as a group. Yep. As Richard said, there are a number of different ways to run travel. Um, there's the core one in the book, which I think does a a solid job at introducing you to the idea and the concept. They do have a tie-in mechanic for generating hazards with the Hobbit's Tale card game. Very interesting little product that Cubicle 7 puts out. But as we were discussing before the show, while it is interesting, it is not necessarily as interesting as you might imagine it to be. But if you have a copy of The Hobbit's Tale, there's no reason not to have it that resource at your table. Um, and also, as Richard said, there is at least one other alternate travel rule system. And Richard, you use that as opposed to the core mechanics in the book. I do. Why is that? Um, so these are the additional travel rules, um, which are found. I got them off the Cubicle 7 forum. Um, they're part of a huge PDF. It's about 80 pages almost of additional rules. Um, uh, it's compiled by um, Richard Harrison, but it was put put together based on um, optional content, which a bunch of different people posted on the on the Cubicle Seven forums. Um, so it's just it's really a community thing. One thing that I like about the alternate journey rules, and this is this is probably one of my very favorite parts, is that once you've done all your work of calculating the distance and determining speed and all of this different stuff, um, it actually has rules for what if you're on a magical path, like the elf path. That's a magical path. Should normal rules of traveling through Mirkwood apply to the elf path, or do you get a special bonus for being on the elf path? Right, so... Um, so there are rules for if you're on a magical path of some sort. Um, and then fatigue tests. Um, fatigue tests are um, laid out, you know, one fatigue test every so many days based on the season you're in with the same same frequency as in the core rules. However, where these rules really differ 
is when you are is who rolls the fatigue test when. So for the first test in every leg of a journey, all player compa all companions are tested using the travel skill. However, after that, you can then either go in order through the rolls. So you start out, you know, let's say, let's say you have a journey that's going to require four fatigue tests. So for the first one, you can have everybody. For the first one, everybody rolls through. Second, for the second one, you could have just the guide roll. And the idea is that you're instead of just relying on the travel skill. You're also mm. highlighting you're highlighting the individual common skills, and it incentivizes players to maybe focus a little more on those skills. Now, the other thing you can do though is if you've got you know three or four or five or six fatigue tests, which need to be made for the length of a journey. Um, there's also in these rules a little random table used in the feet die, which basically says first one everybody rolls. And that's always the case. But then for the second one, or the third one, or the fourth one, you roll a feet die on this table to see, do all companions roll again with an advantage due to fortuitous circumstances? Do all companions um, roll together at a increased difficulty because of the weather? Or do, you know, is this going to just target the guide, or just target the, the, the lookout man, or just target the huntsman? And then, on those individual targeted rolls, when that person rolls an eye of Sauron, you already know, sort of automatically, who gets the hazard. Hmm. Um, so that's that's how I do it. So basically, for the very first roll, I'll have everybody roll travel. And then for the second roll, we'll, usually I will, I will either roll on this table or I will cycle through the rolls in order. One other, um, or a couple of other things I really like about these alternate sets of rules. Um, one is there's some rules in here for journey tasks. So in and these are optional, so if they would bog down your travel phase, maybe don't do them. But if they would be interesting, then you can. So basically at a similar frequency to their fatigue tests, they also have tasks that they can choose to undertake. And the tasks are things like, um, and there are tasks um, um, for there are suggested tasks for each role in the in the marching order, but there are also suggested tasks for each profession or each calling, which I think is a fun hmm. way to draw out the individual callings of players. And this is something I haven't integrated in my game yet, but I want to soon. Then the last thing in the additional rules, which is really helpful, is there are just a crap ton of hazard tables. There are um, there's a large hazard table for each role, and then a hazard table for all companions. Each hazard table has 12 events, ranging from awful to terrible, and <laughs> they are um, and they're very very useful, especially if you're trying to. You know, if, if you're doing this on the fly. And uh, I use these tables quite frequently. Um, I love the Eye of Sauron options on these random tables, things like Wandering Troll and and whatnot. But, uh, but yeah, so the, the additional rules, I think, really give you some, some options to expand your travel phases a little bit. And if nothing else, um, the hazard tables are well worth it. I mean, and these are free. You can just download these off the Cubicle 7 forum.
Well, very cool. Um, one of the other things that I kind of wanted to talk about, and this is not out yet, uh, but the One Ring has a supplement coming out called Journeys and Maps. Uh, it will be available at some point in the future. It is You can read about it on their website. It's going to come with four double-sided maps, and it comes with a 32-page supplement that will actually expand the journey rules and have more hazards. Any final thoughts on journeys? Um, yeah, like Jam said earlier, don't skip it. It's to, this is this is a key part of uh, doing a proper uh, Tolkien-esque fantasy is getting the journey right, and they do a great job. So don't skip it. And don't it's not that it. hard. I mean, yeah, no, we've talked a lot about it, and we said, hey, you got to do this and do that and do this. You just follow the steps on just a few pages in this book, and you'll be fine. And then and. At the end of that, the explanation, they do give you some sample journeys. Yes. Kind of just give you, here's here's how this would play out. It's really not a difficult system to incorporate into your game. But it's awesome. It is awesome. I will say this had, like, 98% less journey puns than I had initially anticipated. Don't uh, stop believing, Jim. There, there we go. We Thank have, you, like, Ben. have, minutes left. <laughs> bring, it, bring it right around. <laughs> oh, wait. So, like, journey the band. Yes. <laughs> and as Richard, Richard has pointed out, you can really have journeys any way you want it. And I don't know, I, I, want, I want to put Wheel in the Sky in there somehow, but it, my, uh, my brain is failing me. So, I, I guess that's it. <laughs> you have been listening to The One Podcast. You can contact us with your questions and comments at theoneringpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Google Plus as The One Ring Podcast or on Twitter at The One Podcast. Thank you for listening.